So we turn in God's Word to Job chapter 8, reading the entirety of that chapter, Job chapter 8. God's holy and inspired Word given to us as people. Give your attention to the reading of it, Job 8, God's Word. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert righteousness? If your children have sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter out, utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over the garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, and it will deny him, saying, I've never seen you, behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So as you know, in our circles, a good deal is made out of worldview. What is your worldview? You need to have a Christian worldview, and all education must be from a Christian worldview. Though, as you probably know, this stress on worldview is often overdone a bit. Is there really only one way that a Christian can view things like computer chip manufacturing, environmental issues, or taking medication? No, not really. The Bible gives us, as Christians, more freedom and diversity in approaching many topics in life. Nevertheless, there are fundamental principles of Scripture that do shape and should shape how we understand the greater world. These principles guide us on how to read and interpret the various happenings of life under the sun. And in one sense, this is part of the debate between Job and his friends. How do they read the painful providence that befell Job? Well, it's time for Bildad to speak his peace 
and he is definitely confident that he has the right worldview. So Job just wrapped up his second longer speech in chapters 6 and 7. And responding to Eliphaz, Job landed a series of solid points. With grief heavier than the sand, Job was not a roaring lion, but he was like a starving, braying donkey whose only hope was death. He had only sought some kindness and tenderness from his friends, but instead all he received was correction and rebuke. Job begged his friends to look at him, to see him as an individual with worms eating his flesh, though Job felt hopeless. Job pleaded that God might see him in concern and kindness, and yet the Almighty had treated him like the dragon. Job felt pinned up under the critical gaze of God, that God's all-seeing law was crushing Job. Job even confessed his sin and wondered why God would not forgive him. Job was sure that he wasn't guilty of any major sin. He wasn't perfect, though. None of his sins were big. Yet he confessed and despaired that if God was slow to forgive, then he would perish. If God did not hurry up, Job would be no more. And there was one more point that Job made several times in his speech, namely that he would keep speaking. Job had to speak the truth about the Almighty. He had to vent his agony even though his throat was sore and his airway restricted. He would not, he could not suppress the truth. Well, Bildad has heard his friend's sadness, and he's itching to share a piece of his mind. Now, all we know about Bildad is that Shuach, the place he's from, is a place down south in Arabia. His name means pious uncle, and he is a friend who has come to comfort Job. Yet his first words aren't exactly what you would expect for consoling. How long will you speak such? This is a rebuke. He's telling Job to shut up. He complains that Job is talking too much and badly. For note, he compares his utterances to a mighty wind. Tornadoes and whirlwinds shoot from Job's mouth. And by this characterization as wind, particularly mighty wind, Job counter, or Bildad counters a point of Job. In chapter 6, Job remarked how his friends considered his speaking as wind simply, meaning pointless, insubstantial, and ephemeral. Job, though countered and said in actuality, he was speaking with restricted breath. He had no wind, but only a whisper. He was talking as through an asthma attack. But Bildad's not having it. He says, your words are arrogant and a chaotic windstorm. How dare you speak with such pomp and strut? You're a blowhard of hot air. Your proud words have crossed the line, Job. For, as he says next, does God pervert justice? Does he pervert righteousness? Well, of course not. This is an axiomatic truth of Scripture. God's justice is pure holiness. He never has a shadow of corruption in his righteousness. Yet these questions are charges against Job. 
their accusations. Bildad blames Job as indicting the Lord for perverting justice. This is a serious charge. It amounts to blasphemy or sedition. Job has impeached God for being unjust. So does this charge stick? Has Job done this? Well, he's spoken boldly. He did wish for death. Job said that God treated him like an enemy, but that's not a charge of injustice. Indeed, Job has, has not yet questioned God's justice. This, then, makes you doubt Bildad's ability to listen. He's not being an eloquent listener here, for he blames Job for something that he's not said. Bildad's projecting on Job. He isn't hearing carefully, but he's hearing what he wants to hear. If a counselor does not hear well, do they really deserve the title? And yet the sharp edge of Bildad gets sharper. He says, if your kids sinned, then God dispatched them for their transgressions. If they're sinners, they died in their sin. Now, Bildad attempts to be softer here as he phrases it as an if-then. Maybe, what if, it could be that your sin, your kids sinned. But this velvet glove is too thin to hide the iron fist underneath. For the then line is presented as a fact. God dispatched your kids for sin. A great wind knocking their house over to crush them all? Duh, what else is it? And if the then line is truth, then the if line is not hypothetical. Besides, The sin of Job's kids follows the assertion that God never twists justice. Thus, Bildad drives home two points here. One, he's telling Job that his mediation for his kids failed. Remember, Job was worried about this very thing, that his kids might curse God in their hearts and be judged. Thus, Job regularly interceded for them as their fatherly priest to offer sacrifices for any potential sins of theirs. Well, his kids are dead now, and so Bildad pokes an open wound. Your intercession failed. Your kids sinned, and so they were dispatched. God is just. Second, Bildad is ordering Job to settle. He must move beyond the denial phase of grieving to acceptance. Don't fight it, Job. Your kids were naughty. What'd you expect for letting them party so much? Just bend the knee to the Almighty and his pristine justice. And having failed to intercede for his kids, Bildad tells Job to focus on himself. You seek God. You pray to the Almighty. Humble yourself and plead for God's favor. But this, too, is conditional. If Job seeks and prays, if Job is pure and upright, then the Lord will rouse himself and restore Job's rightful habitation. Bildad sets the hope before Job of grand restoration if and only if he will pray and be upright. 
like Eliphaz, Bildad is confident that God would restore Job, and yet he doesn't front God's grace as primary. Sure, Bildad would admit God's mercy and kindness, but the condition includes Job's pure uprightness. Job has to plead for favor, but he must be godly. This is not grace alone, but it's grace plus works. Excuse me. The uprightness of Job is necessary to win God's favor and restoration. Indeed, like Eliphaz, Bildad also presents a speedy and idyllic rehabilitation for Job. God will see Job's humble righteousness. He will jump up and grant Job his rightful dwelling place. Even though Job's beginning was small, God will make his end far greater. If Job is truly upright, then God will make the world his oyster. All of Job's blustering, lamenting is overcomplicating matters. He just needs to accept the fact that his kids died for their sin, be godly and pray. And then, bam, the Lord will grant him more blessings than before. And this is Bildad's read of Job. This is his worldview. And this read is through and through the retribution principle. God is just. The kids died, so they were sinners. Job, you're venting arrogant wind, so stop it. Be good, pray for kindness, and poof, God will reward you. Bildad uses the retribution principle to understand past history. He employs it to predict the future. It is the basis for personal godliness and prayer. It explains completely how God interacts with his people. Frontward, backwards, and sideways, the retribution principle is the secret cipher that decodes all of life, according to Bildad. And you have to admit that Bildad's read is clear, but too clean for comfort. Job's mourned in his grief. But is this a charge against God's justice? Is all lamenting a fist against heaven? Sure, God does not bend justice. But other places in scripture admit that God has bent some things. Under the curse, the world order has been bent by God. Ecclesiastes says we cannot straighten what God bent. It's not a matter of justice, but grieving the bent world is fitting. Furthermore, Bildad's use of the retribution principle shoulders out grace alone and mediation. The intercession for his kids failed, so Job needs to focus on his own piety and prayer. The picture Bildad paints is, is not God's complete mercy for sinners, But it's that God meets personal godliness halfway. If Job is pure uprightness, then God's kindness will bring him the rest of the way to restoration. Thus, we are left asking, is this really the correct worldview? Does Bildad embody the one Christian worldview that we should adopt? 
Well, Bildad anticipates our question. He knows Job will be skeptical, and so he shifts to persuasive mode. In verses 2 through 7, Bildad states his position. And now in verse 8, he sweet-talks us to agree with him. Is Job dubious about Bildad's read? Well, Bildad says, then ask the ancestors. The wisdom of past generations, the learning of the fathers, this is what you need to study and receive. The insight of the sages from long ago, their researched wisdom will confirm what Bildad is saying. As he says, for we are of yesterday and know nothing. Our short lifespan, we, in our short lifespan, we can only learn an itsy-bitsy amount. But the ancient learning of the fathers will speak understanding to us. And by this point, Bildad argues against presentism. Now, presentism holds that we know best, and so we judge all others throughout history by our personal standards. As you know, currently, our culture suffers from stage four presentism. Songs from the 90s are canceled because they're not as lightened as we are today. Figures from 100 or 200 years ago are condemned as pure evil since they had different ideas about race or sexuality. Today, the present is the true enlightened moralism, while the past is barbaric, unscientific evildoers. Today, the view is that humans are progressively getting smarter and better, that we are higher up the evolutionary chain than our ancestors. And over against presentism, Bildad's point is well made. For the truth is that wisdom is not a young thing. Wisdom comes from gray hair. It is tested, refined, and proven over generations of time. This is why history is such a crucial field of study. A truly democratic education honors the dead by reading them. Often, the best advice for some current problem comes from a sage who may have lived thousands of years ago. Learn from the ancient wisdom of the fathers. And we have to say, Amen. And yet, there's a presupposition here that irritates. One, Bildad assumes that the fathers all agree. They teach a unified orthodoxy. To demur from the single doctrine of the fathers makes you a heretic. But are the sages so unified? Don't the fathers disagree and debate over things? Second, inciting the philosophers of history It's easy to be selective. You footnote those who agree with you, and you ignore those who do not. So yes, Bildad is right. We must listen to the wisdom of the ancients, but we wonder how good of a historian is Bildad? How thick is his research? Well, he lays out the orthodoxy of the fathers by giving us the tale of the two plants. He compares Two types of plants. The first one is in verses 11 through 15, which is a type of a type of papyrus or a rush, kind of like a cattail. Now the papyrus grows tall and is sturdy. They used it for paper. 
And yet the papyrus is a marsh plant. It only grows in wetlands, and as soon as the water dries, it dies. While young and tender, the papyrus withers faster than any other grass without water. Thus, despite its height, papyrus is the wimpiest plant. It has no tolerance for drought or hardship. And such, says Bildad, is the fate of all those who forget God. The hope of the godless perishes as fast as a papyrus without water. He goes on, the confidence of the godless is literally like fine lace. His trust rests in a spider's web. If the miscreant leans on his house, it falls over. If he grabs for it, it will not hold him up. It's like he's trying to do a chin-up on a spider web. What an image of God forgetting evildoers. Their refuge for safety in life is about as tough as a spider's web. Their rope for holding their life preservers is a gossamer's thread, a delicate piece of lace. As a papyrus without a marsh, so the evildoers shrivel and brown in less than a day. And this is the first plant, the godless and waterless papyrus. But the second plant is presented in verses 16 through 19. Now here, the species of the plant is not given, but it is called a lush green plant. The lush plant remains even before the sun. It endures the hot rays of the sun, and its leaves do not wither. The lush plant not only survives the sunburn, but its roots spread out. From the corner of the garden where it was planted, its branches expand in the garden and even outside of the garden. Its roots entangle the stone heap. It flourishes on the stone wall as if it was fertile soil. This plant is like an ivy or a ficus. It grows and grows over stone, rock, and wall. Then, if it gets pulled up, it still survives, verse 18. Now, this verse 18 here pictures a careless gardener who yanked out the lush plant on accident and then makes the excuse, I didn't see it. You can picture this. The mom scolds her kid. Why'd you pull up the lush plant? And the kid said, I didn't know. I didn't see it. But for the lush plant that was uprooted, verse 19 says, it takes joy in such harsh pruning. Others will spring up out of the soil. That is, the lush plant survives even being weeded. It sends out new growth. The lush plant then weathers the sun, it grows over stones, and it comes back after being pulled up. This is a brawny and vigorous plant, quite the contrast to the fragile papyrus. And where the papyrus was the ungodly, this plant embodies the righteous. The tale of the two plants is the story of the wicked and the righteous. Here echoing Psalm 1, which we sang. And Bildad applies this to Job in verse 20. God will not reject the blameless man, but he refuses to hold the hand of the wicked. Like the spider's web, there's no divine help for the evil person. But even when the upright, the upright are accidentally uprooted, 
the Lord will bring them back even stronger. Therefore, Bildad encourages Job. Note he says, God will again fill your mouth with laughter. Ye will paint your lips with jubilation. Job, he says, you've been accidentally uprooted along with the judgment of your sinful kids. But if you're blameless, don't worry. God will return joy to you soon enough. As a lush plant, the righteous survive and thrive, even amid adversity. And this is the lesson that Bildad teases out of the fathers. This, according to him, is the unified orthodoxy that he insists that Job must submit to. And in parabolic form, this rehearses his point on the retribution principle, especially reading it backwards. If a plant dies, it was wicked. But if the plant flourishes and comes back, it is righteous. This is all Job needs to know. He can stop beating himself over up over things he does not know. Just accept Bildad's advice as he channels the ancestors, and everything will right itself for Job. Particularly curious, though, here is that Bildad stresses joy. The joy of the lush plant is to be uprooted and to grow back. God will fill Job's mouth with jubilation and laughter. Bildad is saying Job should no longer be lamenting. His sad grieving is the mad tempest. Instead, Job should be rejoicing that God gave him the chance to prove his integrity and to grow back better. Bildad doesn't quite say it so explicitly, But his implication is felt. He casts suspicion on all lamenting. To grieve, according to Bildad, is to question God's justice. When the wicked perish, it's what they deserve. No tears required. And when the righteous taste hardship, it's occasion to rejoice as they come back greener than ever. And yet, is this really the wisdom of the fathers? Do the ancients speak with one voice this orthodoxy? And no, they don't. Sure, you can find this among the fathers, but they say much more than this. First, lamenting is not purely a charge against God's justice. Grief is not arrogance against God, but it's first honesty with God. Mourning expresses frankly to God that the hardships of this world hurt like heck. Wailing and groaning recognizes evils and tragedies as they are. Losses. Whether it's justified or not, a death removes a good human life created by God. Death and disease deserve tears. Second, the fathers understood that sin does not explain all suffering. It may explain some, even a lot, but not all. For there is a clear category among the sages for the righteous sufferer. Indeed, history testifies openly that it sometimes goes badly for the godly for no clear reason. There's proverbs that express this. 
If the good die young, then I'm going to live forever. The wicked prosper and the noble are oppressed. You find this throughout the Psalms. Indeed, the sages even stereotype the rich as being wicked and the poor as being upright. This doesn't fit Bildad's clear worldview of the retribution principle. Finally, Bildad's exclusive cipher of retribution leaves little room for grace, especially sola gratia, grace alone. If retribution explains it all, then if you want restoration, you need to add a good dose of your righteousness. Bildad's condition for Job is stark. He says, if you are pure and upright, then God will rouse himself for you. God will help you, Job, as long as you help yourself. You provide obedience, and God will help you with the rest. Hence, at the end of the day, the biggest problem with Bildad's worldview of retribution in its narrow and exclusive way he presents it is that it excludes Christ and the gospel. In fact, Bildad's advice is echoed by the priest and the soldiers and the passers-by as Jesus hung on the cross. Remember that they taunted our Lord, saying, If he's the Son of God, let him save himself. If he's the Christ, God will not let him perish. And when Jesus died, the world judged him to be a criminal, a liar, a loser. A worthless papyrus plant. And yet it's precisely in Christ and his cross where the shallow retribution principle fails. For Jesus Christ was the one perfect righteous man who ever walked this earth. He never forgot God, and not a speck of impurity was found in him. And yet Christ suffered the most. He was uprooted and died. Sure, he was vindicated in the resurrection, but Bildad's narrow read of retribution considers a judicial death as final, the permanent verdict. Well, Jesus died an untimely death upon a tree as the curse of God. Bildad's reasoning excludes Christ and the gospel. For Jesus suffered not for his own sin, but for ours. Where Bildad played down mediation, Christ was all about mediation. For he died for our wickedness imputed to him which is exactly why he could be raised victorious over death. Additionally, Bildad colored grief as problematic. Job shouldn't mourn, but he should look to his own uprightness. But in Scripture, sure, grieving can be abused, but lamenting is more properly the response of our bankruptcy of righteousness. Grief and sadness looks beyond our own uprightness as we have none, and it reaches out for grace alone. In the face of sin, death, tragedy, loss, and our weakness, we lament that it's hopeless until God's grace saves us completely of his mercy. Job looked down on mourners, but Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted.
Bildad was right. We need to listen to the fathers. But Bildad cited the wrong sages. Instead, we listen to the Ancient of Days, to the Eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, the very wisdom of God, who proclaims the gospel to you, solo gratia. We mourn the evils and pains in these days with the hope of the resurrection. And we learn from the cross of Christ that the retribution principle doesn't explain everything. Rather, Christ leaves much in our lives unexplained so that we might rest in his grace all the more and so that we might share his grace with other saints who are mourning their losses. Indeed, as friends in Christ, we show kindness first and not the harshness of Bildad. Amen. Let us pray.